Hello and welcome back to OT and Chill, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. Hello guys, thank you so much for sticking with me all throughout 2020. Welcome back to the last episode of this year. I know this year has been a very difficult one for everybody, but thank you so much for sticking out with me and listening to all the different episodes I've put out there and all the wonderful feedback that you've given. So without further ado, let's get right into the last one for this year. Hello, so we were back again. This time I'm joined by four wonderful women uh, to talk about race and health inequalities. This is an extension from the webinar that was uh, took place back in August. Seems like a long time ago now, but <laughs> it's back in August we did it and we thought we'd follow it up with a, a bit more of a, like an informal conversation. So I'm joined by these ladies again. Actually, we've got someone else, um, someone new joining us on this panel, so it will be fantastic as well. Uh, so I'll start with uh, Gita. Uh, just give us a brief introduction of yourself and then we work our way around. Hi, thanks, Quake. It was great to be back talking to the group, actually. Um, so my name's Geeta Ramdhari. I'm a, um, I'm a physio. Um, but I work as a consultant allied health professional um, in London. I've worked in neurology for many years and I have a bit of a dual role in that I'm a clinical um, therapist, but also um, I do quite a lot of research as well. Um, and of course, recently been got very busy um, with the quality, diversity and inclusion work as well. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great to hear. And next is Andrea. Hi, Craig. Thanks for um, having me. Um, my name is Andrea Wright. I am a physiotherapist as well. I've been working um, as a sole practitioner, a business owner uh, in musculoskeletal services. And um, I've got an interest and also um, I am a somatic educator as well. Um, so I draw on a multidisciplinary um, approach in my work. And um, I have a growing interest in the impact of race and health disparities and um, equality and equity within health care. Mm. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to have a lot of knowledge in parts on that today. So that's good. I'm happy that you joined us. What about you, Shah? Um, hi, Gregu. I, if, for those that have heard our webinar, my name is Shah Hedda. I'm often known as Shah. I've been a neurocommunity therapist for uh, about 15 years in London. I'm originally South African, uh, but I'm stuck here on this island with lots of its weather, cold weather at the moment. My interests are largely uh, to do with behavior and specifically behavior change uh, and looking at how we can bring uh, some sort of critical eye to the current policies and structures uh, within health and social care uh, as it stands today and how we enable all voices to be heard to get some sort of equity uh, of access and care. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Good. Nice, nice mixture so far. Uh, what about you? What about you, Miss? Hello. Yes, my name's Mushrat Ahmed Landu. I like to be called Mish, and I 
has been an educator at London South Bank University in occupational therapy for 18 years. Previous to that eight years, I was a clinic. I was in clinical in neurology as a highly, what you call a highly specialist <laughs> occupational therapist. Um, but yes, I mean, I've kind of woken up that I need to be more engaged and active in um, looking at and pointing uh, a light at the institutional racism in occupational therapy in our professional body, in our professions, in how we deliver services. So yes, I think I just needed to stop being invisible and now I'm very visible and very vocal. No, that's fantastic because it's always good to be visible and, and very vocal. You know, people need to be able to speak their mind and be free to speak their mind. And hopefully when you speak, speak your mind, other people are encouraged to then speak their mind as well. So thank you for all the work that you've been doing so far, um, Mish. So the first question to all of you, uh, you can just give me a shout if you want to go first, is how does one's race impact on their health? And when we talk about race, we talk about perhaps someone's ethnicity, heritage, skin colour, how does that all, in your opinions and in your work or in your experience, impact on people's health? Gita, let's start with you. This is really timely. So um, I'm also part of the um, Child Society Physiotherapy BAME network. And um, there was an incident that, that was, um, was raised by a member um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Andrew remember it as well because we're both on the network, and it was it caused <laughs> a bit of a stir, and it also made me reflect back on when I've seen these things happen in in the past. And so, what happened with a particular member was that she was, I think, having a, a discussion with a manager and another um, quite senior member of staff butted in, and they were talking about pain um, and pain management. And he basically said, well, Asian people, people uh, feel more pain. It, you know, there, there's research that, that shows it. It's, you know, biologically, they feel more pain. And she tried to argue it and was very much shouted down and, and how she was sort of treated in her department was, was not great, but she raised it. And it made me reflect back on when I'd heard these conversations, because now I'm a sort of a, an older, confident, uh, physio, I'm, I'm quite happy to speak out now, but it remain, remind me of back in the 90s when I worked in um, a large teaching hospital. And I, I've talked about this on the webinars before, I think it may be on the Bridges one where there was a similar comment made and because I'm mixed heritage. So um, my grandmother on one side at the time was Irish, um, and the other was, was um, Indian Mauritian. And I realised that they would be treated very differently when if they came and presented to that musculoskeletal department. And at the time that made me quite upset. Now it just makes me angry that it's still 20 years later or 23 years later, that still these, these untruths are going around. So I think that's a very good example. And when I explored this with pain, um, with some of the pain specialist physios, they said, well, there might be cultural differences in how people deal with pain or, or make a sense of pain, the pain experience, but there is absolutely no biological Basis. In fact, there's there's studies that that disprove it, and even the old studies that were done were very much done. Uh, you know, that you're you're doing these studies within a sort of a a Western biomedical culture, 
of our professions and our healthcare systems that doesn't match the, the people who may be then accessing these services or, or actually um, perhaps participating in the, in the research if they even know about it, if they're even selected for it because there's gatekeeping. So um, not only is this, this is the science flawed because the, the right people haven't been examined in the right way, but I'm now really fearful that what I thought might have been sorted out in the last 23 years hasn't. And so, uh, you know, an, an older Asian woman presenting to, and I'm not far off that, um, might present into a department may get a different service or may get a particular barrier or attitude present themselves. That's just one example. And I'm not, I know we can come up with many, but it was just really current. We have a Twitter feed for the CSP Bay Network and I happened to be, um, be, be manning it that week. And I was so, so cross. Uh, I tagged lots of people in it, including our CEO, who actually made a very strong statement going, you know, we, this is unacceptable, this is racist, this is, you know, you, we have to do better than this and, and to, to pain specialists. So we, we think we're going to make a feature of it. But yeah, I, I thought that sort of thing had gone away, but it hasn't. You know what frustrates me when hearing stories like that? When you think about if someone can make that comment, but then you think actually there are people, there are Asian people living in Asia who have physiotherapy or occupational therapy or any sort of hands-on therapy. Do they do they feel more pain than everyone else in the world? Am I, that's what frustrates me about how people might perceive just because we, we live in a very multicultural state. <laughs> actually one group of pe people will experience more pain than other people so I find that very frustrating um, <laughs> when people make comments when I hear comments like that what about you um, uh, Shah? Well I mean there's so many things that come to mind when I hear statements like that and it's certainly not the first time I'm sure as we can all share stories that we've all heard something of that kind uh, you know it still makes my heart beat faster it still makes my breathing a bit more shallow and rapid it still makes me uh, so emotional that uh, I have to, to take a few minutes to step back and think, okay, what is going on here and how do we begin to address it? And like Peter said, just feel so, so sad that 23 years later, which is has how long I've been here, that we're still dealing with the same issues. And I'm sure that this frustration is going to come up, up time and time again. But getting to your question, I think uh, on a sort of individual level, you know, there's no equity of service there, as you say. But when I try and zoom out of the picture, I think about, um, as Mish would know, I've been doing some reading for a chapter that I've been asked to write, thank you, Mish, uh, on um, critical race theory. And that's been really uh, informative and kind of therapeutic for me because Derek Bell talks about the invisibility of the white norm. I'm paraphrasing, these are my words, but he basically talks about how the world is constructed according to the white uh, person and the white narrative. And the fact that everything outside of that is abnormal. Uh, and the fact that um, therefore all the systems that we access are racist, which sounds like quite a radical and sort of almost you know, excitatory thing to say. But when you think about it, it says, you know, it pervades and infects all the systems that we belong to, whether it's education, whether it's uh, the criminal justice system, whether it's health and social care, it's in the books we read, it's in the TV programs we watch, it's in the stories that we hear. So whiteness and the invisibility of whiteness is so predominant that I think for me, it's more about the systemic issue 
and the fact that we need to think about how do we get people to critically reflect on the fact that if you are sitting outside of that norm, you are not the problem. Uh, the system is the problem and how the system makes you view someone outside of that norm is problematic in itself. Uh, so I don't know if, if I can make myself clearer, but um, I think uh, for me, you know, the fact that we've had many, many reports uh, talking about the disparity in terms of health outcomes for health and social care for people of uh, ethnic minorities, the latest of which and most popular of which is quoted time and time again is Marmot 2010. Even he this time despaired and said, you know, this is not rocket science. Ten years ago, we documented unequivocally and, and said unequivocally that, you know, poor housing, uh, lack of opportunities for education, therefore uh, being channeled and sort of sidestepped into the job market because only certain opportunities are available to you. All these social determinants of health are going to make uh, people of ethnic uh, minority communities less able to access equitable care and still you know nothing is being done about it and the, you know the the covid pandemic has just highlighted this in in such a, a lucid way and and so for me you know when you ask how does race impact it, it impacts everything uh and and uh, i i think what i'm really interested in talking about is how do we begin to change uh this structure from the individual to the systemic uh, that's that's really interesting all the things that you just said there I was, I was doing some reading i was actually looking at that report um and, and they said one of the things that um or maybe it's another report, actually too much reading <laughs> so i'm not doing up in your brain um one report said um that one of the key things is uh, income someone's income and someone's work um and when we think about that uh, when i've done uh, over reading into some stats actually you find that let's say black um, households have the lowest income, household income out of the whole population of the England. And also when it comes to jobs, job roles, how, which is how socioeconomic status is determined, black people fall right at the bottom. So actually you've got two things that determine the outcome, outcomes of health. And like, let's say black people or, and other minority ethnic groups fall way, way, way down the, down, down the line, which is definitely going to have an impact on someone's health. What about you, Andrea, with that question? Yeah, I, I you know, feel big resonance with what you were saying, Gita, you know, from a personal point of view. And, um, and Shah, like the way that you touched into this idea about whiteness, because I, I've also been thinking about, I suppose, ideas in relation to decolonizing the way in which we are, our scientific traditions are coming from a European um, lens and a Eurocentric lens. Um, and as such, we are limiting certain knowledges, certain um, experiences, uh, realities and delegitimizing them, you know, subconsciously because we're coming from a particular canon and a particular philosophical thought. So in terms of European tradition. So it's very timely that you talk about, Charles, you know, this critical race theory, which was debunked by the culture minister. Was it the culture minister was trying to debunk it? Um, it was Shocking. absolutely unbelievable. And you could I, I see her error in the way that she was speaking, that she almost, un, you know, sort of exposed her own lie in the way that she was trying to um, 
yeah, kind of destabilize that that sort of tradition um, of thinking. So it's very interesting that it comes at this point. I just wanted to say, isn't it oh. interesting that it was a black woman that absolutely it and, and, and that was done on purpose. That was yeah. done on purpose. And you know, we, and within critical race theory, that is critiqued as well in terms yeah. of those that support the white narrative, that's in yeah. power, and those that don't. And those it's that, that intersectionality between absolutely. power race class you know it's not simple just because she's a black woman that she's going to immediately support uh critical yeah so i so it is very interesting and i and i've also sort of been looking at the 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 marmot report plus 10 and clearly the 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 inequities and the social disparities with, with health and health disparities are education and employment and so you know, I I remember we took a motion to the Black TUC Congress, which was successfully um, supported in relation to supporting Black Afro-Caribbean men who want to apply for health professions at university. And the reasoning being that young Black kids and Caribbean kids are disadvantaged all the way through their educational trajectory. They're increased exclusions from schools, they um, are not in education, you also have the neat generation, those who are not in education, uh, employment or training, um, and so they are facing discrimination at every level of, 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 of their education pathway. When they apply for university, when they get a job, when they're going through the school um, to primary and secondary education. So education is a big thing. Um, and of course, employment is. And so the main drivers of inequalities are power, income, employment and education. So the way in which then, if I ask the question, how does health outcomes impact on those people who are racialized then? those people who are racialized, we find them in lower income households, areas of greater deprivation, we find them with uh, precarious employment, um, low income jobs, we've got the, 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 the advent of zero contract hours, gig economy. So the intersection of, of their health outcomes is absolutely underpinned by their social and economic conditions, as well as the fact that discrimination uh, in and of itself impacts directly and indirectly on on an individual's health. So you think about the, the weathering and the stressors that those people who are racialized or are non-white undergo, and that increases the biological quote-unquote weathering on the system. So whether it's discrimination perceived or actual, whether it is stress because of uh, financial stress, whether it's because of low income, you know, all these other determinants increase uh, the, the weathering and the stressors on the body of, of non-white white people. So, yeah, David Williams is, is, is big on this and James Nazaru has also done a lot of really good work in, in this area. And, yeah, so th- those are my thoughts that really... It's not a biological issue, necessarily, <laughs> right? In, in, in terms of no, that's, that's the outcomes that we see.
it's, it's, I love the way you that motion that you're talking about actually makes such a makes it makes a lot of sense and uh, and you know when I was looking through some of the stats as well from the 2011 census they said that there was a high proportion of of black people in full-time education this was back in 2011 but fast forward nine years um there isn't the same level of black people in higher senior managerial roles in their work so that again it just it just it just really when i look at that when i looked at the style i was just like i was trying to confuse i was trying to do the maths i trying to work it out if back then we we're saying that we can have lots of students lots of black students people in education studying how come that hasn't moved on to people actually being in senior positions or having higher incomes but what you talked about is actually they face disparities every single stage you might be in university but actually you might be um, experiencing dis uh, discrimination your first job you might not get the highest paid um, new graduate job then you, you it goes on from there all the way to the where, wherever you find yourself which is such a shame such a shame um, what and just about to say just sorry just to tag on that the res data shows us that very clearly yeah you know from roger klein's reports no white peaks and here we go on to the you know the the race equality standard, that again is, is really very much demonstrated in, the, in that data. Mish has to go, but just to, to tag onto that point, thank you Mish, uh, but you know, it's well documented for those that want to look, and I think you can't talk about how outcomes without talking about education. And if you're looking at particularly young black uh, boys, for example, and Akala has written loads on this and for other people that are interested can go away and look at it. But you know, it's a trajectory from the first five years of life that then determines their outcome when they qualify at 18. So it's not something that starts when they're in the school system. And related to that is the expectation that's put on, as you mentioned earlier, Andrea, about exclusions, for example, they're often excluded under a category called other which is a nebulous kind of thing where people can say, oh, I just didn't like his attitude. I thought he was a bit threatening. So these aren't kids that are necessarily excluded from education because they're not performing or they've been openly aggressive or they've attacked another child. It's something to do with the way they are perceived by the teacher that has made them a threat and therefore excluded them. And that brings me back to full circle to the whole system mm -hmm. and how we are working in a white system. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Mish. It's your take. What a good question. I hope you haven't forgotten the question. <laughs> How does one's race impact on, on, on their health? I think I'm with Roger Klein and Marmot and the Professor Kevin Fenton. I'm I'm with them in that, you know, we 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 have to get in there and disrupt the systemic policies and procedures that enable this kind of thought, this kind of behavior, this kind of acting. And uh, we have to get into those power spaces as people of color and the people who can influence change, we have to go and influence them. And it's not that we don't have a lack of data, we have data, we have lots of data. But the thing is we do all this research and have this data, but we're not using it we're not applying it validating it you know we, we just say we've, we've done a report and look it showed this 
something that we already know so then what's the action to that i mean it's like the nhs people plan you know the res report is done yearly and it shows that there's inequality of opportunities for people of color within the nhs and so they're bringing in the nhs people plan but you know there was a plan already then they launched this new plan that we're going to do it new we're going to return to this and and do a new show of it and a new plan of it but then i'm not sure about how do you measure it how are they measuring that it's good what does good look like in the first place i don't know so how do you measure what good is you know and then you ask this question and i'm just i'm sorry i'm just so angry by it which so i just i kind of I'm, i'm so overcome by emotion that i cannot even answer it properly i agree with all with all everybody saying it's true it's true we have to look at it through a certain lens we have to look at you know what all the other people say and but we we have to really go to those leaders who are enabling this to be sustained you know the 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 journal editors who are allowing this research to enter publication in the first place and then we have to you know because that's informing the the practitioners and, and you know giving validity to a research that's racist and is not valid yet not challenged and i you can hear it in my voice i'm frustrated that i'm having to justify and qualify and explain this away uh, sorry that's it. where i am <laughs> that's absolutely fine and i suppose one i suppose it's probably many years of you being in in the healthcare and education and things like that you you've seen the changes or you've seen the things that are not going so right for people and over the years nothing has changed and those frustrations are coming through <laughs> i can hear through your voice now and as you said there's been countless reports there's been countless recommendations but i always think why has the recommendations not been followed up with that's that's always the thing that i come back to who who is stopping those recommendations from happening and i i always believe that it comes down to money <laughs> it comes down to money and, and power because if someone's in power doesn't that doesn't want something to happen because we got we have governments that change every every 4 years or 5 years everyone comes with a different agenda so it is is going to be difficult to if none of us or no people of color or people from ethnic backgrounds actually go into those spaces and and you know demand change basically and and give those reasons that change needs to occur it's going to be really difficult for that to happen but I do hear from your voice the frustrations of of all those years of those changes not happening Gita you wanted to say something I was reflecting on 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 your question miss you know what 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 do we have to change you know the evidence is coming through the reports etc and um after the last webinar and i i was i think i gave an example of of where there was an example uh, an incident with a patient and actually quaker you came back to me on twitter and sort of said well this is about culture and so you know and, and about the 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 ice cultural iceberg so what you see on the surface of of a, an individual's culture is actually just a scratching it but what you don't see of values etc that's looking at an individual way and so i did a bit of of looking into this a bit of reading rounds and i i kind of came up i i i'm a very visual i like sort of um flow diagrams and that sort of thing and i kind of uh, messed around with this framework which, which i actually presented at um a, a physio event last month where i think you i absolutely agree i think it is about power and the institutions that we work in particularly the nhs 
and um, and other institutions, big institutions like where you work, Quakey, you know, we're, we're, these are paternalistic institutions. Power is everything. We see power hierarchies amongst the professions and we definitely see the power differential with our, uh, the people who come and use our services. And uh, this is quite a contra maybe this is quite controversial. I will put this out there at some point. I'm, I'm sort of planning a blog on this. Um, once I've submitted a grant, I've got to get out of the way. It, it, but I think it does come down to this, as Andrea said, this Eurocentric uh, model of biomedical healthcare. It's Eurocentric and it's heteronormative as well. This is, although as therapists we are, and AHPs, we often have perhaps biopsychosocial teaching, etc. The majority underpinning of healthcare, particularly in the NHS, comes from a biomedical model because of the dominance of the medical profession where there is hierarchy, there is power and paternalism. And I do think not only do our institutions have this culture, but our professions do. You know, physio, we have a culture, you know, is that you, 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 there is people say to you, well, what, what does a typical physio look like? You know, you only have to Google it and you see there's lots of female blonde um, looking pretty middle class. Um, you know, probably hockey captains and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And then you ask, what does a typical OT look like? And then again, there's descriptions and images, same for speech therapy and, and others. So, um, but we are socialized into that with our training. So what needs to change the culture of our professions and the culture of our institutions needs to change. And that's enormous. So, but the idea of disruption, I think is, the right one but, but it's it's doing it, it i suppose it's it's focusing it and targeting it isn't it and that's tough that's really tough because even though we might make some local changes it feels huge <laughs> it, you know if i think about that i'm working in an, an enormous trust and and that although there are people doing great work and you know talking to some of the senior managers they really want to underpin edi etc but, uh, and they are some people in positions of power, but the whole structure that we're working in is still fighting against that, even the good intentions. It's, uh, it's, it's tricky. It's, yeah, it is tricky. You stole my next question. Um, Sorry. The, the question what I had was, how does the current structure and provision of the health and social care in the UK continue to disadvantage people from ethnic minorities? And you've given a... a, a talking about the biopsychosocial model and how most uh, professions probably HP professions especially follow that um do you want to add anything more to onto it or should I move on to someone else the the, the only extra thing to to say um when I was looking at this is that also we got you know as a, a few people have touched particularly Shah what you were saying um to do with the critical race theory about the, the, the how society is structured and what our expectations of the patients who come and use our services are very much steeped in that western concept of individualism of autonomy of personhood self um, determination and empowerment which does not necessarily sit with some cultures where there is quite a different concept within communities um, uh, etc and, and it's very much an industrialized society view and, and so I think this is why and I, I in the, the talk I gave on this I sort of described you know and you hear colleagues talking about this that that good you know that patient oh that they're so lovely and yes I really enjoy seeing them and then those difficult patients but actually when you look at what makes those people difficult it is, it is actually, it's our perception of that because they're not fitting the good patient box because they're not fitting with all of those preconceptions based on 
the our, our individual culture, the professional culture, the institutional culture, and society's expectations. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, I look forward to reading the vlog. I know I, I need to get back to you. I know <laughs> I need to get back to you from an occupational therapy viewpoint. But yeah, definitely, uh, Andrea. What about you? Yeah, just picking up on um, on Geeta's point about the biomedical model that really just underpins largely all of our ways of thinking and healthcare delivery and our approaches to to healthcare. I think if I ask the question, you know, what is the current structure of healthcare and social care? If we're talking about race, it's racist, right? So when I say it like this, what does that actually mean? So coming down from or building up from the individual, so we have individual biases, stereotypes that practitioners align themselves to unconsciously, consciously, but they perpetuate stereotypes from um, towards people from ethnic minorities, non-white um, or white non-white ethnic minorities. And also, you know, going up from a systems level, thinking about the way in which, you know, certain populations, black populations are overdiagnosed in certain regions of, of, of health. So it might be mental health. You might know something about this Quaker in relation to how people or black people who have psych psychotic you know, episodes, how do they access care? Are they overdiagnosed? Um, with serious mental health illnesses uh, um, and also they're over-medicalized as well in, 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 in their treatment of care. I'm also thinking about access to health services. So those people who English isn't their first language, how do we reach those people? How are they approaching healthcare? What about um, migrants? asylum seekers, non-documented people, how are they accessing healthcare? And if they are accessing healthcare, there may be a risk for their um, status um, because there's a link between, as I understood in, a, in another talk recently, there is a, which I'm really quite shocked by, there's an onus for a health professional if they are treating um, an undocumented person that they need to report it to the home office. Now that's really, 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 really shocking to me that a health professional has that moral tightrope to, 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 to negotiate in terms of a person's care, but also then having to um, disclose that, that patient's health status. So, you know, you want to say something, Quaker? No, I was just going to say, actually, I was, I was just thinking about how what um, Gita was saying about the culture, the institution, institution culture, because just like you mentioned, if someone, if all of us have a, we have to follow the culture of having to report someone that is undocumented, how does that then affect your own value system that you have about, actually, I just want to treat someone because person is having difficulties <laughs> experiencing difficulties so how do you walk that how do you walk, how do you that, walk line? that tightrope yeah, absolutely yeah, absolutely and so you know if if we understand the realities of our as Shah was saying the, the the wider systems approach to how we deliver care those agents who are part of that so the medical system and the way in which we measure and look at disease if it is racist, then how can we as health practitioners, how are we able to disrupt our um, understanding of disease, long-term illness in our patients within a, a racist structure? 
do we have the capacity to recontextualize, you know, disease, long-term illness within the, the understanding of racism and discrimination? And how does that play out in the way that we we interact and our interventions interact with our with our clients or with our patients? I think that's the difficulty. I think there's difficulty when the, the way uh, we, we are taught university um, level, because you, you're, when you talk about conditions, seeing someone and seeing a condition and you not think you think about the condition and all of a sudden you're thrown into a system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a system that actually is driven by this person is this person, this way. Yeah, we might be classed ourselves as person centers, client centers, but actually I don't think we are. I don't, I don't think we are, because if we are, then we won't be having those moral dilemmas in our in my mind um, about treating someone or reporting someone or mm. Uh, mm. making comments like what um, Gita heard before, if you're, if you're dealing with the person in front of you, because um, that shouldn't really influence the condition should not influence the uh, the treatment that you, you give to them because we should be treating everyone as an individual. Right. And also it makes me think about, well, I suppose our health outcomes are strongly linked to health behaviours, right? So that's, you know, smoking, whether that's a be eating, diet, exercise, substance abuse, smoking. Now we might just stop there in terms of, well, these are the things that we need to, to kind of impact but are we really thinking about what are the conditions that might drive and underpin some of those health behaviours? So are we really looking at a more complex picture when we see an individual come to us with a particular condition? And, and are we thinking about you know, racial disparities and other inequities and inequalities that might be driving some of those health behaviours? I suppose what, what would be good to for all health professionals probably look at is not just dealing with health as some of when someone is ill or in hospital or you know health is wider it's, it's, it's big it's everything that you do <laughs> everything you do has an impact on your your health behaviors just like you you talked about so i suppose we, we can't have a narrow view and that's what probably what's been happening a lot because when you have such a narrow view on on health because someone is in um in a place of discomfort you don't think about everything externally so you might make assumptions based on the person in front of you based on their skin color based on what just happened maybe a couple of weeks beforehand but actually if you think about the wider context of why they got ill um where they live (laughs) you know i know sometimes we don't have that time to get dig deep but actually if we if you just have a general understanding of people from a deprived background the people that live in a very um, low income area are probably more likely to engage in these type of health behaviors you might not treat them differently or say um, it's your fault or it's this person's fault but then it comes back around to those systems thinking Shah, you wanted to uh, add a comment yeah sorry i there's so many points i want to jump in on it's uh, <laughs> it's wonderful to be able to speak to people i feel it's sort of, as I said earlier, therapeutic for me. But um, just starting off with uh, Andrea's point, and I think Gita mentioned the point about, uh, you know, ethnocentric, very heteronormative models that we use for health, which are largely, you know, Western-based. Uh, being South African, we face this dilemma in psychiatry when I first uh, qualified to work in psychiatry for two years, um, and looking at how we could incorporate the traditional Zulu models around hallucinations, uh, around community, the concept of Ubuntu, you know, where the community very much looked after people that were sick. And I remember 
one man coming to us and, and saying in a group who's saying, I don't understand why the doctor thinks that putting me in a room and talking to me about my problems and getting me to talk to him about my problems is going to make me feel better. I want to be back home with my family, my children, working. You know, and he went on to list all the things that he thought would make him feel better. So, you know, the arrogance of the uh, superimposed kind of system where we think we know better and we need to lead healthcare, I think is, is problematic and flawed and, uh, you know, it goes, speaks to uh, Gita's point about being paternalistic. And I think, uh, you know, we, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What we're asking for is a space to open up to say, let's look at the different models available. Let's see how we can begin to use them. You know, some will fail and some some won't and, and just experiment. But the powers that be are so scared of giving up that space, uh, of opening up that space for us. And it's about saying to these powers, and, and I think it starts with being, ident being able to identify the invisibility of the whiteness. I think that's the problem is that the people that are embedded within the system don't think it's a problem because <laughs> that's all they know. That's their normal. And, you know, it, it reminds me that, and I always say to my husband, in South Africa, it was a lot easier because you knew you were the good guys. You knew the bad guys were the ones that were saying you weren't allowed an equal opportunity at life's chances. And so naming something, identifying it, meant that you were able to fight against it. But when whiteness and the system is so invisible, we can't begin to fight against it unless we can point out to people that it exists and therefore, it, and then the problems with it, and therefore what we need to start doing about it. We can't begin to have those conversations. And I totally hear Misha's frustration. I think we all feel equally frustrated. We've all been activists on some level all our lives. And I think, you know, for me, it's very much like, I'm tired of having these conversations. I want the results tomorrow. But the difficulty is that unless we keep having these conversations, we're never going to move forward. And, and you know, there's lots that we can come to later in your question about how we begin to have these conversations and what I think one of the questions is we practically need to do, but I won't jump ahead. But just to say that I think that, you know, absolutely we need to change those models. We need to start looking at alternative models alongside that and we need to name the, the problem with the whiteness that makes anything outside of that abnormal and disadvantages people that have to access it. It's the elephant in the room isn't it Shah? Absolutely. It, it is the elephant and that is yeah. the problem or one of the key problems. I mean the problem is it's you know uh, it's as I say you know unless you see for people that are embedded within it they're never going to see it because it's, it's always to their benefit. And you know, on the comments, I, I said Derek Bell, who is the father of critical race theory, he talks about um, interest convergence, that power will, or white power will never shift and never open up and make space to move out of power unless it's in their interests. And the difficulty is that when we are given that opportunity, we've got to make sure that it's not just tokenism, that it moves into action. One of the podcasts I listened to by um, one of the uh, uh, one of the professors on critical race theory in the UK, and he talks about the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, and he talks about how at that point, when the police force and the criminal justice system was found to be institutionally racist, and the government was pushed 
to actually do something about that in education. And they had a document that then said, okay, we need to make every school anti-racist and every Ofsted inspector had to read and do a course on how the elements they need to look at in a school to be anti-racist. They thought, finally, we've come to a point where we've got this amazing document and 23 years later, what has happened to that document? Within the Ofsted, the, uh, the uh, Ofsted inspectors, it's now become optional for them to do that. And the question of black education and systematic racism within the criminal justice system has been widened and diluted to being that of class and poor working class white people. So for me, it's about when we get to that point, if we get to that point, how do we then seize that opportunity and make practical changes that sustain themselves? So when we disrupt, we do more than disrupt. We then have a very clear plan and strategy to make this legislation, to make this policy. Otherwise, it's going to be a token kind of gesture. People are going to go on a health, uh, you know, an EDI, uh, equality and diversity, or an inclusion course, or and by you know unconscious bias training course, and it's going to be lip service, like multiculturalism was back in Tony Blair's time. I can sense that you definitely shouted. I was holding those phones, holding on to those phones, but it's very, very interesting. Very, very interesting to listen to you. Mish, I left you last again. <laughs> what have you got to add to that? What have I got to add to that? Look, we have got the International Classification of Functioning, which tried, which tried to be a biopsychosocial model, right? It tried really hard. It's got all the elements in it, but we don't really use it much or refer to it as much as we should and incorporate it within the medical field I'm talking about. Occupational therapy is different and I'll tell you why it's different in a moment. But, um, and then what else? Was, and then we have the Equality Act. We don't need anything else. We've got Equality Act. It says, you know, if you're doing anything discrimin discriminatory against those nine protected characteristics then it's unlawful why do we need anything else there's a measure right there right why do we go and get we'd have to make the race equality act blah, 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 blah. extra stuff we've got something that's there it's not perfect but it does say if you're being anti-racist or not because you're within the law why aren't we using that why are we referring to that more i don't see us doing that i see us inventing new things to get us further away from what we need to do but we've got things there already and and thinking about occupational therapy i mean i say i say this quite openly i have been complicit in the racism because i have avoided being visible and just being invisible and get on with my job i don't want any trouble i just want to get on with my job and i'll peddle this racism just to get on with my job so no one will notice so I can earn my living you know and pay my mortgage but occupational therapy is a therapy based on social justice based on emancipation it's got its core philosophical roots in that and our western centric models are within the heart of it based on emancipation but then we have this occupational therapist within this institutionally rigid organizations 
which don't enable them to practice what they have been taught for two, three, four years about social justice, emancipation, equity. That is what our therapy delivers. It says, if you want to enable someone to live a healthy life, a life of opportunities, a life where they can thrive, it's not just about individualizing them, it's about understanding all the influential environments around them that enables them to do what they need to do. And then we have to go in and adjust, adapt, but collaborating with the person all the time. So here we have occupational therapy that, that says that, and then we have the system that says, no, actually, you have to get them out of hospital, you have to discharge them from the service. It's all time framed and monetary. But then they don't see that this time frame, this rigidity ends up spending more because people never get what they need. So they come back again. So we're in this cycle all the time. So how do we disrupt that? We know the data is there, but that doesn't work. We know we talk about money, but that doesn't work. What is it that will stop them? And we talk about Eurocentric delivery and Western-centric delivery, and we talk about decolonization, and I talk a lot about white supremacy, but I know those are words that scare people. I know they get scared when I say those words, but I also know because I understand those words, I can explain it in a language that will be accessible to them so that they can come in now into the conversation with me. And I know I have to do that. It's not uh, making white supremacy less. It's not de denouncing decolonization or racism, but it's getting, if I'm an occupational therapist and I have to understand the other person to engage them, I have to know the language that will engage them into the conversation with me, you know. And I know I, I, I do use the words like uh, widening participation, internationalizing within when I'm talking about education, internationalizing education, um, widening participation. I don't talk about attainment because that's negative, you know, students attaining um, their education to get the right whatever it is, um, sorry, attainment camp, it's about getting to one or more. I don't talk about that. I talk about successfully completing the course to get their, if you like, license to practice by getting their registration, because that's what is important to the students that I'm with. And also when I talk to the students currently, they're talking about, you know, we, we don't see discussions around people of dif different cultures as much yes it's peppered in and it feels like an afterthought but why don't we internationalize the curriculum so that we do uh, just um, it's embedded it's integrated that we do look at not only other cultures other countries we look at authors who are not white who are not white female white male you know who are from different cultures even if it is from uh, a white racialized european culture you know it just doesn't always have to be black and brown cultures you know internationalizing is about uh different layers of doing things so i think we have an issue with racism not an issue it exists we do have 
white power but explain that to someone who's white <laughs> you have to bring in a language that will help the conversation but not take away that it is white power so I think there's there's lots of things going on lots of things that exist but we don't capitalize on them like I said the international the ICF framework and the Equality Act these already exist and we know that we can use them and the words like institutional racism as well that's my theory one of the reasons that it didn't get taken up and because we are in 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 um in a place where people think racism doesn't exist or you know don't be so hypersensitive you've got a nice life you've got a nice career what you're complaining about you know you've made it good doesn't you know just stop you don't have to think about anybody else but the important point is that the reason it wasn't get it wasn't taken up is the white majority got completely they they were fearful and they were also felt attacked and they thought actually this doesn't exist we're not institutionally racist you know we we're good people doing good things we're police we're doing good things you know what are you worried about you know you gave us the authority to work with you we're working with you the way that we know is going to be part of law and order instead of thinking a police is a public servant they're part of the community they're supposed to be helping the community helping the community to work with each other to empower them so that they can help each other so they can help it support each other and 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 you know reduce the crime help the youth provide opportunities that that never came into the frame it was just you called me institutionally racist I'm not racist it wasn't about an individual being racist it was about structures policies and procedures but that's why it stopped right there because the white power said well this is nonsense of course we're not doing that and it's like explain to them what institutionally racist means I was talking to a student who who got very exercised that I was talking about whiteness and institutional racism and when I explained to her in words that she could then engage with she suddenly had an aha moment and she thought oh okay because she was saying I'm from a white poor family and you know and all that Mary Top Chrissy stuff you know I worked hard and da 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 and I was like well that's good now put black on top of that where would you end up yeah i think i think one of the is, is those you know at the beginning um well this conversation about race has always been happening um but you know it, it really was highlighted around may uh, june time and a lot of people were saying oh sometimes it's, it's really uncomfortable and i can't find the right, right words and the right language and, and you know these i find it uncomfortable to talk about and i suppose what you're saying Mish, is actually you can talk about it we just need to find the right words to invite people to carry on those conversations because if we don't have those conversations those systems people in those systems are not going to change and if those systems don't change then we are going to continue having that, that uh, view that we should be so rigid in our in the way we think and the way we work even though in university you've been taught all these lovely models and different ways of thinking you shift into these systems and it's very rigid so actually if you don't have conversations outside of um what your institution is saying 
you become part of that institution and when you become part of that institution it continues to disadvantage everyone else outside the perfect uh model of uh, patient like like Gita was um, um, describing. But we become what we don't want to be by not actually thinking okay I'm not going to deny racism but how do I now talk with this person who's not engaging with me and I can see that the word racism has triggered them but I'm going to still use that word racism but I'm also going to use other words that are going to engage them in the conversation. Because otherwise we become then too, too polarized and we'll never come together to start having that icky, uncomfortable conversation to start then the process of action. No, no, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to move on to the um, final question because I think we even touched on um, my third question that I had. But if anyone else has got a point to add as part of the, the final question, you can add it on. And my, my third question was, how can ethnic minority groups be empowered to voice their concerns when it comes to health? Um, and the final question I had for you guys were, what practical solutions can allied health professionals make to ensure that health inequalities are not reinforced? And I've, um, I know Sean uh, sort of hinted on some of her points um, earlier. So I'll, I'll go I'll start off, actually, I'll go to Gita because you've been very quiet listening attentively through us. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, go, I'll go to Gita just so, um, yeah, how, what practical solutions can um, all AHBs, regardless of black, white, Asian, can, yeah. can we all take to ensure that health inequalities are not reinforced in practice, especially? Thinking it, it's, a, it's a big task and it's about having everybody with you. But, but I, I, like, I like one of the phrases, I, I don't know who said it earlier, about making space. If we make space to listen, I think that seems to be what can really change people's hearts and minds. One thing that, that um, in terms of practical solutions, it, it's how we invite the people who use our services, how we go out to people who maybe aren't accessing our services, who maybe become distrustful, um, of our services because of prior experience, they don't feel like they belong, etc. So it's bringing people in to inform us, to, to work with us, to actually to not just consult, but actually to jointly develop. So what are the things that, um, the couple of things that, that I've been sort of thinking as we've been going through, what little thoughts have been popping up um, as I've been listening to you all, just these fantastic conversations. I'm in awe of all of you and I'm learning so much from everybody on this podcast is that um, because I have a researcher hat I've um, I've been reviewing fellowships and what dismayed me was that there were three applications that came through where people who didn't speak English as a first language were to be excluded so um, I but was realized that that three of these applications had this on so i went to the funder and said look um there must be you don't you can't tell me that you wouldn't fund translation services interpreter services etc and they said well yes of course we'll fund that this particular funded have had a big drive on how to reach out to people who don't necessarily engage in research um so i really went to town on the feedback on these particular fellowships so I think one of the things we can do is we all have a responsibility to find to where we see something that's not sitting well with us, 
that we think this feels wrong, this feels discriminatory, is to find out more and to challenge it and to try and, and go to the people who make those decisions. So that was that, was that instance. Um, it can be quite hard when you're quite junior um, and that's where I think some of our networks are really helpful. So the BAMOT network, our CSP network, because then at least, um, which is what happened with the with the incident I gave earlier, is that somebody who was a little bit more junior came and then got some solidarity and some suggestions and then got people fighting their corner a little bit um, because, we, you know, where, where people might have other, other experiences. And the other thing that I've been working on and actually Charles will know this group very very well the Bridges group is I've been working with them and learning more about actually we're developing um, an intervention and how we develop our services but actually how you do it, it collaboratively you do you co-design these things with, with people um, and when you approach people to be involved with that process you go out and you purposively find people from different backgrounds some people who maybe don't have English as first with people from different cultures, maybe think about where the spread of that is. Um, there's been some great work um, being done, I'm sorry, with my sort of physio slant um, on, on pain um, by Dr. Dana Mackey in, at Brunel. She, she hosted with others um, a really nice study day. Um, and there were some fantastic examples of, of local services that had gone out. So there was, I think it was, I think it was in West London, sort of South Hall, going out to, um, to South Asian women um, particular groups um, for it was cardiac, one of them was cardiac rehab, one of them was to do with pain, pain management. So it, it and and they worked with the community to find out how can this work, how can this work for you, how will we be able to invite people in. One of um, Andrea and our we have a colleague, Shoab um, Mohammed Shoab, who in um, who's done a lot of work up in in Yorkshire. He's a pain specialist. How to engage some of the communities in around Bradford. So it, it is about finding those solutions, not just thing, not just dismissing people well that person are oh, they dna'd well you know and not just not trying to find out oh well, they, they've not engaged their rehab potential isn't there but actually being creative working collaboratively and i think we all have a responsibility to do that and and also again i think you probably have to be quite confident to do this and it's funny you said i was quiet because i'm not often quiet craig i'll be honest um, but uh, but um, for us to to challenge in in the way that that Miss you were saying, but actually inviting those conversations and and trying to do that in our departments if we're in a big department and what what's been great where I work is I've started those conversations. I've made myself quite vulnerable to the group as a quite a senior person there just to try and encourage people to come and discuss things. What was great is that there was an away day by one of the professional groups. I didn't even know about it, and they focused it. And the, the people who were organising it were all white. They focused it on diversity and they focused, we want to have these discussions. We don't mind how awkward they are. Um, you know, and I gave them my little culture talk to start, start them off. And then they, and then I ducked out and they ran with it, you know, and some of the BAME members of that profession were texting me afterwards going, it was brilliant. I feel like a real corner's been turned, you know, and you, it, so that's about sort of trying to slowly change culture. So so us disrupting Within, within our workplaces, but also thinking about how we how we we engage and how we listen, how we make those spaces for people to say, right, for my community to to work with you guys, this is what this is what we need, this is what we this is our our needs. It's good. I, I really like the, the idea of going out there um, and and meeting people where they are because you know when we talk about NHS. We I know some some places NHS do it. 
but we always want people to come to us sometimes we want people to come to clinics but actually you probably find the best work is in the community where people actually live because <laughs> you, ca- you capture them in their natural environment um you then you get to actually understand what impact the environment is having on them basically mm. uh, you know just say it occupational well yeah i didn't want to say because there's a couple of physios in the room andrea sorry what, what, um, <laughs> what did you want to add to that question about how, what other practical solutions um can can we all take um day to day or uh, systematically to you know to to stop um health inequalities being reinforced you're gonna get licks Craig and you Mish <laughs> later anyway so I'm not gonna say I'm just gonna leave it there um I think the thing for for me is I'm just thinking about my own sort of trajectory and I've been thinking about these lines of inquiry really in terms of how I might recenter the experience of the of the patient at the center of care so we have as I understand it, I don't work in the NHS, we have personalised care, we have, um, what's it, shared decision-making models, right? What you've been alluding to, uh, Gita. And how do we create these participatory models, right, of learning so that we can, you know, co-create care and interventions that are meaningful, that are local, and that are really drawing on the strengths of individual clients. I think for me to do that effectively, it comes back to, I'm just thinking for myself, I need to really widen the context of health disparities and um, those people are racialized. So thinking about the wider health equalities and educating myself to the realities of people who are racialized in the community. Also this idea about decolonization, so, you know, I, I am approaching and how can I shift power between how I inter, interact with my clients? So what are the knowledges and experiences, as I've talked about before, that I want to recenter and legitimize? So people from the African and Asian diaspora or from those traditions, what knowledges do they have that are um, real? that they use, that are operational, and that are legitimate. And I, what does that actually look like in terms of me centering those knowledges and the way that I deliver my care? I, I'm, I'm really interested, right? To really, really um, center the individual if they have a particular ethnic, um, ethnic um, background. And whether AHPs have the capacity, resources, and support to really do that. And the other thing is really going back to the Marmot's report. You know, do we, if employment and education are the big drivers of health inequalities, do we need to equip ourselves at university level in terms of, you know, access to social care systems, access to uh, housing, navigating the, the benefit system, employment, you know, how do we as health professionals support our individuals, you know, in the wider social economic kind of framework? Do we need to have more basic training 
really at undergraduate and at you know ongoing CPD. I think that's a really good point, actually, because I can't remember um, in university having any sort of conversations about how the NHS is made up, uh, how the social care system is made up, or how um, people from deprived backgrounds, how they access care. Until I went, actually, I'll give you an example, I went on placement to a paediatric um, placement in the community. And we just I was having a conversation with my educator and we were talking about why people miss appointments. And it's not just because they just want to miss it. People, there's always reasons why people are missing appointments. But actually thinking, actually, people might not have the money to travel to you every single time. <laughs> so they keep missing appointments because they just don't have the money. They have to pick up the, the childcare issues. People are working um, longer hours. You know, all these things I'd, I'd, I hadn't really thought about until I was out in placement. So I suppose you can learn out in placement. But I think, I think from the off, or you said from the off in your undergraduate, you should be <laughs> understanding the context that people are living in, the context that people are surviving in the community, because it's all about keeping yourself safe and looking after your family and your loved ones. So if I, haven't, if I have to decide between taking a bus or taking a taxi to a clinic for my child to maybe do something with an occupational therapist or actually buying that child food, which one am I going to do? <laughs> which one am I going to do so do those kind of conversations I think needs to be had in, in university so f thanks for bringing that up um, Andrea what about you um, Mish how how can we how can we have what practical solutions can therapists I think I want to tag on to what public health do <laughs> because how they kind of access community leaders and community groups to help them kind of deliver some of that public health programs and I was watching something I think it was on Newsnight about how they're they're hiring people from the community people who look like the people from the community who live in the community and training them up and almost like um, the Ubuntu thing like the village is looking after itself and so they go out, they go and uh, are able to access the people, work with them and then come back to the um, community centre where they've got the qualified therapists and talk to them about who they've seen, what have been the issues and within this community centre, and I think it was somewhere in London actually, within this community centre they've got social care, physio, occupational therapy, uh, a locality nurse they called it and uh, a GP well, there were several GPs from different areas, but they all worked with this individual who was part of the community, who lived in the community, who, you know, was completely immersed in the community. And this person wasn't saying, you do this, or, you know, you have to, saying, you know, these are the issues coming up. These are the people who are saying they haven't been able to come to points, blah, blah, blah. And actually what it was doing was making the health centre uh, immersed part of the community so they were getting more footfall through and it was not just about health issues of things about childcare, things about finding work because or you know food and and things about embarrassment about being poor there was lots of 
issues coming up but and all actually, those things miss all those things you just said actually impacts on people's well-being because actually yeah. if, you, if you're struggling with all those things your your mental health is definitely going to decline well it's it's the whole thing about you know it's about healthy lives and having life opportunities these were the two things that were preventing people really getting on with their lives and being healthy as you said and i just thought that that kind of I mean we need the NHS don't get me wrong you know for for the service it gives we still need that service there but for when we don't need the NHS we need some kind of like a, a village community of the areas that we have and have that real you know where I saw it happening was in that South African community with uh, dealing with COVID-19 where the people from the community were trained up to be I forget the name they were called but they went in there and they it wasn't that they had uh, there were physiotherapists or they had medical knowledge but they went in there and they talked to the people and finding out wh- how is it that the health center can help them and uh, you know and so that they would be able to use that and it was really interesting because I was talking to one of my clinical mentees I'm their non-academic mentor and she was saying how COVID-19 actually has improved how some of her service users um, engage with her because now she's got the um, digital platform and they seem to like that they feel it's less threatening and they're in control and they seem to be engaging with her more I and mean, she works in mental health and she's seen such a change in them like she's doing teaching someone routines and she's in their house but on a digital platform and they're working out you know when do they need to change the bed when you know what about budgeting how they're going to do that to make sure they have enough money for food and to pay the bills as well and 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 a lot of these people would not engage with her would not let them in would not let her in through the front door you know and and it's about working with people and their needs the interesting thing was that she was talking about how people from those global majority populations were now enabling her to come into their lives to collaborate and work with them but because of this digital platform and she said I never thought about that I really Mm. didn't think I just thought they really don't want me what can I do I'll keep them on my books and when they're ready they'll come to me I never thought actually I never asked them is there any other way yeah i think i think that's a very good point you raised and it's it's, it's come from such a uh, you know difficult like pandemic that we or everyone has experienced but actually that's a very uh, practical way for people to engage uh, people and actually reduce some of the inequalities that people face having access being being able to access healthcare through different uh, forums <laughs> you know not 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 just at the point of of need not just when the nhs or ane or anything like that but actually before before people actually get into the system because the system is just going to scrunch them up <laughs> not treat them very well uh, and then push them to the side again before but, they get into the system actually can you reduce some of those disparities they face um, and actually reduce the risk of them um, being in the system yeah, but it made her and I when we were having our conversation as mentor and mentee it made it made us think that the Marmot report about, you know, the digital divide about people who have and people who have not. So there, and she was thinking there must be lots of her clients who would benefit with this digital platform, but actually just don't have the means to 
to access that. And so now they're getting left behind. So it made her think even more about that. You know, like in my uh, work at the moment, it's, it's one of the things that actually kept us going during COVID uh, that some of the young men, well, all of the young men have got in-cell telephones. So we were able to call them. We weren't allowed to see them face to face, but we were able to have conversations with them over the phone. Actually, that kept them going throughout COVID because already you're in a very difficult situation already as it is on top of being locked down for very long periods of time for anyone for anyone it's going to affect uh, how you think and how you feel and how how maybe distrustful distrust you have for the system again because you're in a system so actually having that technology to engage them in conversations to find out their thoughts and their feelings about what's happening in the world um, because they are part of our, our community <laughs> if you like or not they are part of the community we have to um, support them as much as we can but yeah that made the real um, big big difference to how they've managed themselves during such a, a difficult uh, few months for everyone. Um, Shah, you've got the last word on this. Uh, oh, sorry, I was scared. Yeah, I was going to say, oh dear, that's, that's always a very kind of big setup that I'm going no, no, no. to step into. No, um, fine. But be... I know that people are tired and you're probably short of time. But uh, just to very quickly sum up to say, you don't have to tell me as a community therapist that I think it's a place to be because you don't have to understand the context, you don't have to understand the culture, you don't have to think about what that person is having to deal with because it's all right there the minute you walk through the door. And uh, time and time again, services uh, in the community have proved that they are more effective, even though they might have a longer time trajectory. But unfortunately, we do have to deal with acute setting as well. And it's about how we think about the uh, power shifts in our very biomedical, paternalistic, uh, cu medical culture that a lot of our professions are embedded in. And there's a fantastic article written by uh, Kilbride. I remember when I read it, I was like, this is it. It was, it's called um, From a, uh, what's it, From a Benign Dictator to a Reluctant Democracy. That's it, I always have to think about the word. And it's all about a little research project uh, which, which they did looking at how comfortable therapists were with giving patients the power and shifting the power base and saying to people, actually, what is it that you want? How do you want to solve this problem? How can I support you to do this better? Without us having to dictate, actually, you should be washing and dressing and you should be going out shopping and you should manage your budget better. And saying to them, you have power in this. I am an equal investor in this relationship and uh, let's see how we can progress forward. And what was found was that most people, most therapists aren't actually comfortable with that, as well as some patients aren't comfortable with that because we get used to being told what to do. We walk into a doctor's surgery and we want the doctor to write up a, write a prescription. We don't want the doctor to tell us to sort out our own problems, but we know inevitably that we are always, and this is maybe more philosophical than you need to be, but we are always the best uh, at solving our issues within ourselves. Uh, so that was one uh, kind of thing. It's just about how we change those cultures and we look at shifting the power base. And then it's everything what everybody else said, you know, just about the institutions of our cultures and how we can change that on a personal level, but also just thinking about what other forms of activism, activism we take. You know, are we working at a policy level? Can we work both at a policy level 
and as well as on a local level. Uh, and then thinking about, uh, you know, when we talk about that policy change, how we begin to have those on, con honest conversations and the language we use, Mish, so that we don't intimidate or scare, but we don't also hide away from the fact that racism exists and we need to have a seat at the table and that we're not going away. Just like Mish has done with the sterling job with her many supporters on the BAME OT network. And for the OTs who are listening, I put a plug in to say, if you're not part of that network, please join, because it's amazing. Kweku as well, who's been very amazing and kind of starting that up. Uh, and, you know, then it's about- CSP BAME as well, because they helped yeah. us grow. Exactly, you know, and learning, looking at models where people have been successful, and taking those principles and being able to run with it and apply to your profession. Uh, but also, you know, the, the very common trope of you cannot be what you cannot see. So being visible, how do we make ourselves visible and therefore mentor, role model, other young therapists that are coming through so that, you know, they're not subsumed by the overwhelming structure that Gita talked about earlier on. Uh, and, and creating little opportunities for them to be active, to know that their activism that everything is political, but it doesn't have to be offensive. It doesn't have to be aggressive. It can just be about creating that space. And lastly, something I'm very, very passionate about, and that is co-design, which all of you have spoken to tonight, is how do we truly invite that? And I, that's why I think the community is the place to be, because that's when, for example, you go into the Somali community and you see that these young men of war, they've come from war and years and years of war. And you don't need to go on a cultural competence course to understand that. You need to just walk into a home and to understand that distressed mother and to see that child is psychotic. Over and out. <laughs> I've spoken a lot. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> no, I think, I think you know, it, 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 all these topics, all the questions that we, uh, we didn't even get through one of the questions, but all the questions, you know, bring brings out a lot of emotion for starters. But actually, I can sense from everyone of you that there is, that, that activism is coming out you you really want change uh, but you don't want change just for yourself you want change for the better for the um, for, for the community mish i just want to say i said it in the webinar that was on just with the ot society it's about the personal is political you can't get away from it you cannot get away from it and I love the fact that the personal is political came from the 1960s student activists who wanted emancipation, who wanted change in the political and social structures. And that's where we need to start. We need to start with the children. I think starting with people at university, you've already got those habits and thoughts already entrenched and we're trying to undo that. We have to do that, but we have to start with the kids. Like Shah said, by five years old, you can have so much harm in your life. Let's start with the children. Let's start with the people who are looking after the children. Let's start with the families. Let's create that village of hope by making sure that we are, you know, carrying out that personal is political. Um, that means we have to work a bit backwards in that because we, we do have to start it's, we, if we can't see the children <laughs> we have to start with the university students because then hopefully especially the professions that we're, we're all in hopefully they have an understanding they can pass it on to their children or you know whoever they work with the families because I think what, what, especially now um, 
there's a lot of students now like even get, get in contact with me and it was like oh yeah you, you're doing great things but I, I'm not I don't feel like I'm doing great I don't feel like I'm doing great things I feel like this stuff should have been given to me <laughs> when I was when I start went, went to university or even in school it should have been given to I me tried. Yeah, I know you tried me <laughs> but it, it, it should have been coming from everyone not just not just me it should have been coming from everyone actually we would talk about critical thinking but actually should really go beyond the profession actually think about society uh, uh so, so, sociology all all those things thinking about so yeah now i think we can start with the students at the moment and hopefully the, the generation will change as we go ahead but no honestly thank you so much all of you it's been it's been fantastic i i, I, I so every time i speak to you guys i'm like oh wow i feel i feel a bit inferior but you know what yeah it doesn't because you guys got so much experience but it doesn't matter we all um learn so much from each other so thank you everybody i hope you're not calling us old kweku uh, no, I, I don't want to use that word. But <laughs> no, but, no, thank you so much. And um, yeah, let, hopefully everyone, people carry on the conversations and, and we move forward and bring about change. So thank you. As you can tell, I have a wonderful admiration for all these women. Every time I speak to them, I always learn new things. Thank you so much for continuing the conversations and thank you so much to Bridges Self Management for giving us the opportunity to take part in the webinar back in August. And like I said at the beginning, this was the last episode for the year. I've got many other wonderful, wonderful guests lined up for the new year. So until January guys, stay safe.